Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll discuss book one of the Dark Tower series, The Gunslinger, chapter three. Let's start the show. Great. Well, let's start with a little bit of a synopsis of The Oracle in the Mountains, chapter three of The Gunslinger. In this chapter, Roland and Jake leave the desert and reach a grassland. Um, After camping for a night, Jake is drawn by a spirit to an ancient ring of stones with an odd altar. Roland rescues him from the spirit and eventually goes and confronts the spirit himself, which is some sort of succubus or oracle. And that oracle, uh, after a interesting uh, back and forth, uh, provides him with a prophecy about his future. After that, Jake and Roland continue to follow the man in black into the mountains. And finally, after 12 years of chasing him, Roland sees the man in black face to face. So as we start, as I mentioned just a moment ago, um, Roland and Jake are moving from the desert to a grassy land. And Stephen King makes a point of noting how lush this area is um, in this grassland. Especially compared to the desert, right? Yeah, right. So this desert was just a sort of momentous, harsh landscape that Roland had to traverse and the last half had to traverse with Jake. And, you know, they they were very concerned about water and food and just the, the, the sun and getting out of that desert. And through it all, Roland never seemed overly concerned about the desert. He at first he mentioned some things, but after the way station, you got a sense of, hey, this is fate. He's gonna. I know I'm gonna make it across, and I'm not scared, even though I'm in this deathless land. Well, now we get to this lush grassland, and um, there's readily available water. They they make a point of saying how they feel. They can waste water when they're washing dishes, and um, yeah, it's such a luxury now. They're they're not, not just, such a luxury, exactly. And they're not just eating canned beans from who knows when from the basement of the way station. There, Roland's able to quickly shoot some rabbit and and, and skewer them over a spit, and just things are great. And what's odd though is that there's this darkness to all of the the lushness, um, where King mentions that. Even though things are full of life here, there's this current of death behind it. So um, whether it be the vines that bleed and, 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 or the, the tall grass that's sort of cutting against him and feels to be grabbing at him, you get a sense that this life force is really almost more of a enemy to Roland and Jake and their quest than the desert ever was. Yeah, I think um, you summarize this nicely that uh, in the desert, death was his enemy, and in the mountains, life became his enemy. The the living nature of his surroundings was just as dangerous, if not more so, than the the bleak, dead, dried up desert. Sure, and and even the the succubus, the the oracle that. Um first tries to draw Jake into its grasps and then after making a deal with Roland draws him in it's it's all around sex and you know this life force around it and even in the descriptions of that King's very vivid with with this life force and but you still get a sense that this might not be safe for Roland even though he seems to know what he's doing um, mm-hmm. but it, it's still again that life force being some sort of enemy, even though it's an ancient life force um, and potentially as a spirit dead, but just everything just, it, 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 it's more of a sense of foreboding than you would have expected from this setting, as opposed to the desert where you just sort of got a sense of, Hey, it's dry and hot and arid and potentially dangerous, but not really anything worrisome for the, the folks. So I just thought that was an interesting switch of how things you might normally produce that or or think about that yeah 
And I think it's interesting how like the desert presented a danger just by being like the opposite of life. Um, where if he just ran out of food, ran out of water, the desert would just cause him to his life to end. But in the the lush mountain area, it's the the friction of the grasses, it's the grasping of the tree branches, it's the it's the abundance of life that is an obstacle and it's almost like it's actively trying to tear him apart Mm -hmm. as opposed to just allowing him to stop it's trying to break him down sure and it makes you to some extent wonder about roland himself you know there's lots of talk in this about he's the last one and he is the only one left and there's only Jake, or no, he doesn't even mention Jake. At, towards the end, I think he says there's only three people there, or there's only three things that matter at this point the man in black, the gunslinger, and the dark tower. And it's like they're trying they're, to, they're the three, the only three things left from the old time. From something. the old times, yes, exactly. And it's yeah. almost as if there's a sense of trying to destroy the old times entirely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, throughout so i just thought that that was a a unique way that king approached this section as we get this change of setting for the first time um from the desert to the mountains yeah and along those same lines i think it's right at the beginning it might even be on the first page of this chapter um one of the first living things that they talk about when they get there and and roland realizes where they are and he's He's excited because they're able to shoot a rabbit and they see the jungle and the water. And he's like, there, there would be a spring ahead and it would be even cooler. And it was, but it was better out here in the open. There might be sucker bats in the deeper shadows of the grove. The bats might break the boy's sleep no matter how deep it was. And if they were vampires, neither of them might awaken, at least not in this world. Yeah. This was interesting to me. Um, and we talked a little about genre last week or, or last episode, Jay, but how we've been introduced to maybe another genre here. Very, yeah. very uh, subtly, I think, by King. There's no vampires on the page, but there are the potential of vampires in, in Roland's head. And he does not seem at all surprised or worried about it to the much to the extent other than being aware of it and knowing what to do. Yeah, I think he he looks at it as something that is um, totally not surprising. Still something to be cautious about because uh, you know, he's worried about what effect this could have on Jake if he's bitten by a vampire bat. And he even talks about how like that might mean that Jake would die and wake up in another world. You know? <laughs> and like that's still just like, but that's the sort of thing that happens to people every once in a while. <laughs> You don't want it to happen, but there it is. Hey, there's vampires, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But it, but it's interesting, and I know in in talking about this book, there's just this whole mixing of genres from the Western, obviously, um, and it's obviously a quest novel, this novel in particular, uh, mm-hmm. as, as Roland is looking for the Dark Tower. But the other genres that are just thrown in by King to add to the book's mishmash of styles sort of effortlessly. And it, I, I mean, to me as a reader, and I'm not, I'll be, I'd be interested to hear your take. It doesn't seem like it's forced in any way. And it doesn't seem, I, I think King's done a good enough job of building this world that I'm not shocked or surprised to have these things in it. It's, it's cool when I, when I notice them, but it doesn't seem out of place. I agree. I think he's done an excellent job of weaving all of these things together. It's almost as though he, rather than intentionally trying to make something that is a mix of genres, he just sort of let go of the reins and let his story take him where it would. And this is where he kind of ended up. In the original version of this book, I think there's a little bit less world building. And he used uh, certain things that have become sort of touchstones of the the larger series like the fact that things leak through from what we th- consider our reality to this alternate world of Rollins like songs like Hey Jude and things like that i think he just relied on those things more heavily in the original version because he wasn't thinking in terms of this 
bigger world. Mm. So he was just making a world that made sense for the character of, of the gunslinger. So of course there's a honky tonk piano and, and of course they're going to play some old folk songs and, you know, he's not Tolkien, he's not Martin, he's not going to make up songs when he's a 19 year old college student <laughs> right. writing one of his first books. So he's just, oh, I'll just use a song that I like. And that make, uh, that's what I think is happening. I don't know that for sure. But so I, I think that just sort of borrowing from whatever genre was convenient at the time that he was writing the story led him down these various roads and it worked. Right. At least it works for me. I really like the fact that it blends these things. But it, it does feel more like he just allowed it to happen rather than sought it out. I would agree with that. And I think both of us know King well enough that eventually horror was going to come into it in some way. Um, yeah. And whether it be sort of the supernatural horror with the vampires, potential vampires, I don't know if this is a Chekhov sucker bat or Chekhov vampire that's eventually going to <laughs> yeah. go off in a, in a future act. Um, but even just sort of the, in the earlier chapter when Jake's killed, the horror of how that's described um, sort of the body horror of, of that killing when the man in black throws him underneath the car and he, and you know, his intestines are going and he's bleeding in places. It's just, yeah, that, that is very much Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, uh, it, that part's not a pleasant read. No. And it's done. In, it's done so, so efficiently and almost clinically because the character of Jake, you know, he is, He's describing his own death and he's seeing these things happen and relating these these details of his body being crushed and destroyed in a way that seems like it would almost be impossible. You would think the pain would be too great to remember anything except flashes of color or something. But instead right. he's like, no, I saw this body part and this internal organ and this much blood and... I remember the texture of the street that I was staring at and then the nothing. taste in my mouth. Yes. All that. Yeah. Uh, um, so, the, so the other genres that King hits on and that I think maybe we, I don't know if we've mentioned or not, or just sort of the ideas of like a high fantasy, low fantasy type of thing. So, you know, the gunslingers seem to be stand-ins for almost the Knights of the Round Table, right? They're the, the yeah, good Yeah, I, I, I the see them pal- as quest knights. Yes. They're the, they're the good paladins who um, are, are on the side of light and, and chasing the forces of darkness in some way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you get that later on, I think, towards the end of this chapter when they're talking, when he's relating about how he lived in a castle to Jake and what the castle was like and, and the town that he lived, uh, New Gilead, was like. New Gilead, is that right? I think it's just Gilead. Gilead, okay. He makes it very much sound like a high fantasy. We live in a castle and we're good and there was many wars and we won all the battles, although, you know, we won all the battles, although there was a revolution, so the war was lost. But you do get right. the sense of this high fantasy. And yet at the same time, it's not, it's almost more of a low fantasy, just, you know, it's one guy in the grit and the grime. Um, you know, it's, it's not your typical Camelot tale either. Um, it's a lot more dirty and grody, like you might expect out of George R. R. Martin to some extent, although this obviously predates Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. By many years. When you're talking about high fantasy, it makes me think of a little bit of Disney and a little bit of the once and future King and st- stuff like that. Right. Where we know these these are tales that aren't real. Everybody is idealized, and um, all the characters follow these grand rules, and and they don't. And those types of stories don't deal with things like sucker bats or <laughs> uh, creatures in the desert that have the the body of a man and the head of a of a bird. Sure, you know, and things like that. But they do have wizards, they do have magicians, they do have good and evil, and the story is about good and evil. And so, yeah, it's definitely a combination of, I guess, the high and the low fantasy. Yeah, the one thing I'll just add to that, and then we can move on, is the 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 other thing that we get in these book, in this book at least, that we wouldn't get in that type of high fantasy 
is the introspection, right? Where mm-hmm. Roland is, and we've talked a little bit about this previously, but I'm sure we'll talk about it some more, is how, what impact is it having on him and what, how does he view the events that are happening and what is he thinking about as this goes on? So um, that's something that's often missing in high fantasy where you d- don't get that sense of character necessarily because they are such idealized beings or I, some sort of stereotype of this is the good knight and this is the helpful wizard and this is the evil sorcerer. Um, we There seems to be more to it than that with the gunslinger and Jake and potentially the man in black. Yeah, yeah. You don't get much about how Lancelot, you know, was beating himself up about uh, the problems he caused King Arthur's court and yet there he is. One thing that I was, I kept wondering while I was reading this chapter was who is the man in black? Like not, not like what's his name or where did he come from? Although those would be interesting things to, to find out. It's kind of like, what does he get out of all this? Is he who he appears to be? Things like that. There's a a passage in the book that says that the man in black has eaten Martin's soul. Uh, Martin was the wizard slash uh, advisor to Roland's father. And so he's eaten his soul. And so I wondered, what does this mean? Are these just different names for the same man slash creature? Or did one actually consume the other? Mm-hmm. You know, did, did they exist as separate beings at one point and then just sort of through the power of black magic um, actually just become one entity? What were your thoughts on that? And, and, and we learned that from the Oracle, right? I think mm-hmm. at, at one point when Roland is asking the Oracle for his prophecy, that's when he learns a little bit more about that. But yeah, it is interesting because we're, you know, more than halfway through this book and we don't really know who he hit, who the man in black is at all. Um, other than that, it's important for the gunslinger to follow him. And that he has some information that he has information. Although when they finally meet face to face at the end of the, the chapter, the first thing that Roland does is try to shoot him and, you know, three, three shots that go wide. and my question about that is did he subconsciously miss because he knew he didn't want him dead? Did the man in black make him miss or was it just, I guess was it Ka, the hand of Ka, the hand of Ka, because it's obvious there's at least two other scenes where he's using his guns and there's no, no problem shooting, you know, uh, when he's shooting the rabbits. He he pulls leather and is able to kill three rabbits, which are much smaller, quicker creatures without any problem. And even though the man in black is not that far away from him and standing still and a much bigger creature, mm-hmm. Roland misses him each of the three times, you know, and three again, right? The number three comes up m- multiple times here. So, um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure, you know, th- there are more hints about it and we do not have a good sense of who the man in black is other than he does have answers and we don't even really know the questions yet do we yeah and we don't really know the how powerful he is i i think that because we get the the feeling that he's allowing roland to catch up to him and he mm-hmm. could easily outpace him or just disappear altogether if if he has the power to just jump from between worlds to go grab jake and bring him bring him back kind of thing what is he doing hiking across a desert? Right. And why is he doing it at a pace that would allow a a person to be able to keep up or catch up? Right. Yeah. It, and then it seems and then probably ludicrous. slow down even more once he has the boy with him because you know they're not traveling quite as fast and exactly a couple. Yeah, exactly. There is, and I get think that gets back to the whole trickster nature of him, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, now that we're actually seeing him face to face you do get the sense that he's toying with him, right? He's just toying with Roland um, yeah. and taunting him and goading him into, oh, well, I'll see you on the other side, just the two of us looking straight mm-hmm. at Jake as he says it. So um, it is good. As far as the, 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 the original question you asked about Eaton Martin's soul, um, you know, normally I would say, oh, that's just a, a figure of speech that, you know, in some way there was a confrontation and, and he destroyed Martin, but there's enough questions here that I wouldn't, 
I would be open to any sort of interpretation of this as a literal eating of the soul or some sort of consuming and, and or, would, or, or are they the say, same creature? Yeah. Or I would reveal that based on my own knowledge of the, the rest of the books, I don't know the answer to that question. Mm. And some of that confusion comes from the fact that King has made changes. I don't want to spoil things by revealing what some changes were, but he's modified Martin and the man in black enough that he might have been one way in the original version of the book and another way now, and I'm still not sure which one is closer to the truth. And I think that that's fine. I think that that mystery actually makes the character more interesting and lends him a bit more more power even as a just as a character in a story because we don't know what he can do we just know what he's allowed us to see whatever the case getting to the end of this chapter really builds up the excitement for their actual face-to-face confrontation whatever that may look like right um i think that that rather than worrying too much about his background i was much more concerned about how is this going to end up with the man in black and Roland face to face. What will that mean? Um, what are the, what are the questions? What are the answers? What, like you said, what is the man in black hoping to get out of this? Why is he doing this? Is he even in charge? Yeah. I made myself a little bit of a infographic, um, (laughs) based on the, based on what the Oracle said. So the Oracle, you know, she tells him that there's going to be three that are very important, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So Roland goes to the Oracle and realizes, hey, I can get information from the, the succubus and I can get a prophecy of some sort. Um, and, and the price for that is I'm going to have to have sex with this, this spirit in some way. Um, but first he wants yeah. the first he wants the, 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 the prophecy. You know, he finds out that there's there's really three that are going to be important. Um, the first is young, dark haired and is infested by a demon named heroin and he doesn't know what heroin is. Mm-hmm. Um, the second comes on wheels. Um, right. And then the third is death, right? But I think not it's, for you, Gunslinger. But not for you, Gunslinger. And that's in the revised version. That's not what it is in the original. But but yeah, so that's the third one. And then that's not enough for Roland, which is interesting because we got this sense earlier that he was single-mindedly in pursuit of information on his quest for the dark tower but then Mm -hmm. he asks, what of the boy tell me about jake and the oracle says the boy is your gateway to the man in black so here's my first infographic an arrow from boy to man (laughs) in black the man in black is your gateway to the three that we just got described and the three are your way to the dark tower so you get this whole sort of here's the the things you have to pass through to get there right does roland choose to interpret this prophecy that he must abandon or allow Jake to die as his, you know, gateway. If that's all it is is just simply that he's the gateway, that doesn't mean that Jake can't just be a a bridge to a thing. Like like he doesn't doesn't have to be a sacrifice. <laughs> um oh, but, but uh getting but a little does... bit ahead of chapter 3 there, but it makes me wonder why does Roland uh, kind of jump to the conclusions that he does about these three and these gateways? Because no one ever pays for it in silver. You pay it in flesh. Remember that, Jay. That's right. <laughs> unless unless Jake brought some money with him from the other world, uh, mm-hmm. flesh will be the price to pay. That's right. So I'm not sure where we started there, why I wanted to get on that piece of the the Oracle, but I thought that that was... It, it again, it's sort of the, these are the, this is how you have to get from here to the next piece. Um, and every, everything's playing a part. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're stepping stones to the tower. And as he buys his way uh, for these pieces of precious information, he just accepts them. Like, so if, if the Oracle told him that information, what's the information that he's hoping to get from the man in black? Is it the way to get to the three? Is it, or is that going to be made obvious? I, I guess we don't know. And that's sort of the, the, the cliffhanger there. But what are the answers that, that they're hoping for? No spoilers. 
I think he has no idea where the Dark Tower is. He just knows that it exists and that he knows it's important that he find it. And he says earlier when he describes when his childhood that he and his friends knew of the tower, talked of the tower, but they thought of it as though it were just a metaphor. Mm. It, it wasn't a real thing. No one had ever actually seen it. And I think only after the world moved on to the point in which it has did he did Roland come up with the idea that maybe this is something real and maybe this is something I need to find out about and track down. So I think the next question I would have, and to build on what you just said, you said like he doesn't know where the Dark Tower is. Is a better question when the Dark Tower is? Um, because this chapter in particular is filled with so much information about time and things moving on and time softening and time changing in some ways and potentially the Dark Tower being a part of that or a reason for that. Something has happened to time. Things are moving on faster now. Yeah, so is it that the time is changing its pace relative to some other constant, or is it that the world is just moving on faster and faster, or is it both? Or Yeah, right. So, hmm. it's, it's, in, it's interesting because it, it gets into sort of how things can be castles and Old West and still have some modern things at the same time, right? Like all these things are condensing in some way or all part of the same timeline but perhaps there's jumps of some sort. Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like things broke down and then were built back up, like Planet of the Apes or something. Technology got really advanced and then just was plowed over by time, and and then people still existed. So as they, you know, they kind of started over with, like, fiefdoms and castles. And it still had electricity in some places and still right. had some technology, yeah, so... And this question's probably along the same lines as the question you asked me about the man in black is what's the dark tower? So what's the end game for for Roland? What's he hoping to see or get from the dark tower? Um, we know he's the last one of his kind, right? Mm-hmm. I think he says that to Jake. Like, what, what's he hoping to get out of the dark tower? What 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 answers is he going to find there? Yeah. Um... <laughs> Sir, very good questions. They're the questions we're supposed to be asking at this point in time, correct? If, as yes, we're reading I, this book, I think so. I mean, there's the there's two layers here. There's the actual quest of finding the man in black, but then there's these deeper, larger questions that somehow I guess are not going to be answered at the end of this book, since there's a seven book series, um, mm-hmm. but or probably eight book series, eight books, seven. Yeah, I guess seven you, plus one. Yeah, if you count the one that he added after the fact. I have a note here about how we finally start getting information on the Dark Tower. I think this is when he's with the succubus. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Roland gets this information dump and the tower is a, quote, power nexus in time, unquote. Um, and that the world is moving on at an accelerated pace in Roland's lifetime and that time is softening. So he's learning this from the Oracle. And I think some of it he already knew, like the fact that since he was a boy in Gilead to the present time in the story, things have gotten a lot worse a lot more quickly. And so it's like, I don't think this was a revelation to Roland, but I think the fact that this is part of a much bigger picture, I think is new information to him. And this whirlwind of time where he gets to just sort of watch it like a movie there's a passage in the book about how worlds rose and fell and he watched as the world moved on. But that made me wonder, like, did we just get along with Roland, like a high level summary of the entire history of his world? Or is this all of the worlds from the perspective of the tower? Yeah, that could be because the way that things are plural there, right? Worlds rose and fell before him, not a world. Empires were built. Um, it does seem like maybe there's he's seeing more than just his world. Yeah, we just learned that this is a nexus in time, and we know for sure that there are more. There's at least more than one world. There's Jake's world. There's Roland's world. There's potentially more than that. And so, yeah, if if worlds are rising and falling in this 
high speed video that he's getting from the the Oracle? Is it just one? I kind of feel like it's multiple or all of them. Yeah, I think so. Because I mean, right after that, when the Oracle's giving the prophecy about the three, the first is the is a young, dark haired man infested with heroin. Mm-hmm. When Roland asks, "What demon is this?" I've not heard of it, and the Oracle doesn't know either because prophecies are by nature sort of foggy, or in this case, the mirror of prophecy is darkened. Um, but the the Oracle says there are other worlds, Gunslinger, and other demons. These waters are deep. Watch for the doorways. Watch for the roses and the unfound doorways. And I think that that's a line new in this edition. But the Oracle is basically saying there are other worlds that you might have to know about that you you don't have all the answers to this. And that you might have to visit. Yes. Interesting note about the roses. Yeah. Here we we've talked a little bit about changes. Here's just a one little tiny minor change that just stuck out for me. He gets mad at the Oracle and says, God damn you. And the Oracle replies, no, God damned me. And it's capitalized in the new version and it's lowercase in the old version. Hmm. That is interesting. <laughs> it's a very subtle change. It is. That could be just an editorial thing. Like, like they, it was inconsistent in the book and they changed it. But yeah. One thing I found interesting about the Oracle was that it's presented to us as though it is imprisoned in the the stone ring, but when it approaches and departs, it seems to make like a ripple effect in the grasses. Yes. As though it can actually move out and into the ring of stones. Maybe it's anchored there and it can only go so far, but it's clearly not only in within the the stone ring i i note the same thing because he says at one point he's worried that he's offended it so much that it's going to go away entirely right and Mm -hmm. he doesn't want it to leave until he gets the answer so he has to sort of call it back because it is about to leave the ring or maybe the ring is just symbolic or maybe the ring is where it can be manifest in some way as opposed to just being like the wind right yeah maybe it's interesting that it's at this mini stone edge but you know and again, I don't want to belabor the point. I think we mentioned already that Jake Chambers is a JC, um, but there's lots of biblical connotations throughout this this chapter. You know, there's an altar where he has to rescue the boy from. Um, mm-hmm. Later on, the the man in black has the voice of Jeremiah, who is a prophet from the Old Testament. Um, you know, and I already mentioned at the end, he says there's, you you don't just pay in silver, you pay in flesh, which is obviously a Judas um, reference. Um, just mm-hmm. lots, of, lots of biblical stuff that isn't quite as prominent as sort of the other themes that he has of Westerns and genre stuff. The biblical stuff tends to be on the, I think, more subtle side. Another small change I noticed, at one point after he rescues Jake in the original version, Jake looks up to him with sheep-like eyes, and he cut that from the... The new version. The sheep-like? Yeah, the sheep-like. It's not exactly sheep-like, but it's along that, you know, it, it might be like dumb sheep eyes or something. But yeah, the sheep piece was uh, carried out. So. I had uh, one other note about the tower. There's uh, another passage that says, In that moment, the gunslinger felt he could almost understand the implication of the tower itself, for that moment seemed to stretch out forever. So the thought that I had on that is that if the tower has an implication, something to do with stretching time, it seems to be more than the perception of time. Instead, it's the tower seems to be more of the thing that sets the pace of time. It's mm-hmm. like it's the the metronome of time, and that that seems contradictory. It's like the metronome sets it tell, like keeps time. So if the tower is the metronome for all time, if somebody were to you know, change the setting on it. Now time's moving faster. And since we experience time within it, we can't tell that it's moving faster relative to something else. But if we're on a path of destruction, like the world is moving on, and now it's going faster than it used to, that could be a reason. Yeah. And and, and what is the reason for it moving faster? Is there someone, something, some reason that the the setting has changed? What's... Is there a force behind it, or is it the force itself? Yeah. Is the tower just like a a dumb thing, or does it have a consciousness? Yeah. 
when you put it like that, it's almost like uh, the deist version of, you know, God is a clockmaker, right? Like he just sets the clock and then the clock runs, but then maybe he's wound it too tight or wound it not enough and the, the clock has changed in some way. Or that God has been displaced by yeah, something else. Potentially, yeah. yeah. So, so after the Oracle, there's sort of this continued hike through the mountains and the confrontation with the man in black, which is just right before that Jake realizes that they're going to run into him mm -hmm. um, and starts to plead, let's go back, let's go back. And this is where the relationship between Roland and Jake takes sort of a heartbreaking turn here. Yeah. And also it's a, it's an indication that Jake, like Roland, is being aligned with Ka. He is starting to understand things and know things at an instinctive level without being told. And one of the things that he's picking up on in bright, shiny red letters is you are in trouble now. Yeah. And, and he doesn't know how to deal with it because the, the very person who he's come to completely rely upon for his safety and continued existence is the person who he now intuits um, will allow him to, to not continue. Yeah. And it's interesting because the beginning part of the chapter, it's all of, you know, and it's happened in last chapter too, but when we're first presented with Jake, he's sort of this weak boy that Roland figures is going to be a drag on him. And, he, you know, throughout the desert, he mentions how, you know, Jake was stronger than I thought, and he's able to carry his own. And, um, you know, he carries the water bags. And then, and in this one, he starts to take even more types of independence, right? So the Roland trusts him with the jawbone and tells him what to do if there's trouble. Um, mm -hmm. he, he gives him the flint at some point and says, make a fire, and he's able to do it. Um, he even starts picking up some of the phrases that Roland uses, right? So it's not just... Yeah. The, He's totally become, you know, and I, I, does, I, am I remember this correctly, that he even says if he were to become older, he might even be, have become a gunslinger himself. Yes. Um, and yeah. and it's, so there's this whole, he's not just a boy, but he's, he's following in the footsteps to some extent of his protectors. And he's becoming not just a protectee, really, right? He's becoming his own man in some sense. Yeah. And, and he's not too different in age than... Uh, Roland was in his flashbacks to his yeah, childhood. Right, he's almost like exactly the same age. And and to your point, like like you said, he's able to intuit that. Hey, wait a minute, <laughs> he knows what's happening. Like he's not just he he's picked up other things too, right? He's not just picked up simple things like the same phrases that Roland uses, but he's also picked up that. Oh, wait a minute, I'm a pawn in a larger game here, and mm -hmm. I'm being used by potentially both the man in black and Roland here for some reason. And it's just, it's just so bad. Like I think the night before the, the they camped the night before meeting the man in black and Roland's just joking with him and says, you know, they're, they're on a ledge on the mountain. He's like, Oh, don't roll over. Mm -hmm. you know? And he says, Oh, don't worry. I sleep like a, He's like, what? Like a dead man. <laughs> and he starts crying and you're like, ooh, <laughs> the boy knows. Yeah. And then later on, when he, as we just talked about, says, he, you know, he doesn't want to go any further. And the line's going to break my heart where he says, let's go back. And he says, you're going to kill me. He killed me the first time and you're going to kill me this time. And I think you know it. And the gunslinger felt the lie on his lips, then spoke it. You'll be all right. And a greater lie yet. I'll take care. <laughs> And it's just, they're just going through yeah. these, they're just going through the motions. Everyone knows what's going to happen, but let's just say the things to make, make it all right. I thought that was an interesting choice of word construction. I'll take care. Yeah. You could say, take care or I'll take care to just simply mean, I'll be careful. He didn't say, I'll take care of you. He just said, I'll take care. Right. So like, it was a way for him to almost say the, the whole thing, like, I'll take care of you, but not actually say it. I think that was very likely intentional on King's part and, you know, intentional on Roland's part, too. 
because he doesn't want to face it, even though by this point in the story, Roland is fully aware of his impending betrayal of Jake. I think that's what Jake is picking up on more than anything. It's not like there's just some invisible radio you know, signal that's getting beamed into his head. It's, I think he's just picking up on Roland's behavior and... But Roland reflects on this, and he asks himself, could anything justify it? And in the moment, it seems like, no, nothing could justify this. But I think that there are larger things at stake here, like the tower. And not to sound as calculating as Roland, but if the tower is as important as Roland thinks it is, and it means sacrificing Jake to achieve his quest, then Jake is not important enough to give up the quest. Yeah. It's that simple. It's pretty simple math, but <clears throat> it's still pretty cold. And I guess the other question is, and this gets back a little bit to the time piece and just sort of the nature of the tower, is could he do anything about it? You know, even if there was another option, is he even able to consider it? Um, you know, th- when th- when they're getting close to the man in black, the gunslinger feels the the tug of anticipation, the feeling that it was all finally in his grasp. And this is the part I noted in particular. He had been through this before many mm-hmm. times and still he had to fight himself to keep from breaking into an eager trot. And, you know, it gets to that point where we've talked before about how the gunslinger can, I think when there's action, he sort of has to take it. He's able to reflect on it later sometimes. Yeah, but when when something's happening, he has to do it. So his his hands think for himself. He has to slow down his legs from going into a trot. And if this is all fate in some way, maybe there's no way out for for Jake. Yeah, there are a lot of things competing for control of Roland. One is that he is so finely tuned as a weapon that, like you said in that passage, his legs had a mind of their own. His his hands shoot for themselves like one of his childhood friends said that his fingers seem to have eyes because he could aim while he's blindfolded so his body is like this is my target i must shoot it and his mind has a slightly more complex plan for the man in black so he's competing with that but then you have that other underlying layer of fate of he's in the the wagon rut of of his destiny and yep. he can't leave that that path perhaps um or it would take a really big push to take take him off of that path and maybe all those things working together just make it impossible yep and at the end of this chapter he's like the, his mind's made up right like there's no going back he says that was the moment at which the small figure before him ceased to be jake and became only the boy an impersonality to be moved and used Mm-hmm. And that's it. He sort of washed his hands of it. Um, and at the end of this chapter, you don't get a sense that he cares anymore. You know, we we went from the last chapter realize him saying he loved the boy, and he, yeah. you know, and now we're at a point where what could have been his son or reminded him of himself is now just sort of a a, a piece on the board as they move forward to follow the man in black. Yeah, he has literally become a pawn. Yep. All right. Anything else about chapter three, Jay, that you would like to touch on? A couple of passages. We've talked before about Roland and his supposedly limited intellect, but uh, when he is meeting with the Oracle and she's trying to control his mind somewhat to get out of him what what it wants, there's a passage where Roland uses his, his mind, his intellect as a defensive weapon. The, the line in the book is, he let his mind coil out at her, the antithesis of emotion. What exactly is the antithesis of emotion? Like, is it just nothing? And why is his mind the, the opposite of emotion? Right. But that is how he fights back. Like, like she's drawing something out of him or trying to tamp down his, his mind and he lets it spin out. I think the mescaline is something that helps him achieve that higher consciousness or something. Sure. But there's an odd passage in that piece too. Like I, I under, I think that 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 piece that you have there, it's interesting and sort of a cool visual. What it actually is, you know, like you said, I'm a little confused. Is this, is this 
sort of sort of the Spock-like intellect of it, or is it just sort of letting your mind go blank, or what is you know to your point, what is the antithesis of emotion? But there's a right. there's sort of a rough description where he talks about how he he felt a pulling at both sides of his temples, like a tug of war, and mm. his, and his brain was the rope. And I was like, oh, Steve, that wasn't the best. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think that I don't think that metaphor worked very well. But the one that you pointed out, I like a little bit better. <laughs> Yeah, it provides some nice imagery. I just don't really know what uh, what and, it really and, means. Yeah, and you know, this is another instance where Roland, who is near a Superman mm-hmm. with his guns, is put into a position where his guns have absolutely no use whatsoever. Right? Like, right? He's fighting a ghost. <laughs> yeah, something that doesn't even have physical substance. Yeah, no, no, no corporality to it. So. <laughs> right. There was a uh, another thing that I thought was. It seemed important. Roland uses a term in the high speech, Dan Din, Mm. which I had to look up in the Dark Tower wiki. And the definition um, of this word is uh, to turn over one's insoluble problems to one's din or leader. So Dan Din is to just open your your mind, your problems, just give yourself completely over to your leader. And he was saying this in terms of the passage that he was thinking about, he was thinking of Jake as his din, I think, Mm. where he says, to open one's mind and heart to the command of a child, the idea was insane. So what is happening here that Roland feels on the verge of opening his mind to Jake? And why is this so preposterous of an idea? And how is Jake, this young teenage boy, suddenly somebody who could be Roland's din? Right, his leader in some way. His leader. This seemed like a complete 180 on what I saw as their dynamic. And it, Roland seems to be dismissive of the idea because Jake is a child, but I think what he's really recoiling from is what he thinks is Jake's immediate future. He can't allow himself to continue to be emotionally connected to this person because he knows that, or he's decided that Jake is going to be sacrificed. Yeah. So I think that's really what's going on, but I don't see the whole leader thing. No, I mean, I'd have to think about it a little bit more, but I mean, you could potentially take the uh, the Christianity metaphor forward, right? If you think of Jesus Christ as a leader mm-hmm. um, and knowing he has to be sacrificed and he is sort of a Judas at this point, you know, I I would have to play around with that metaphor a little bit more. And I'm not sure if, if King's really wanting to go there, but, you know, because he is a sacrifice, maybe he was more than just a pawn. Maybe he's something bigger and that's yeah. why he's the leader. I don't know. I mean, the, the line in the book is to open one's mind and heart to the command of a child. Yeah. I guess the fact that he does say child as opposed to Jake, right? Like it's not just mm-hmm. the fact that it's Jake, it's it's any sort of child. Uh, touching on uh, our now long-standing conversation about Roland's intellect, there's a passage where Roland is sitting sentinel over the sleeping Jake mm. when they're up climbing the mountain. And Roland thinks, quote, long sober thoughts, unquote, while pondering the fact that Quote, such meditation was a novel thing for him, unquote, yet still feels that such introspection is, quote, utterly without practical value, unquote. So Roland does not see tragedy in the situation. He only sees predestination, or ka. Um, when Roland is done with his sober thoughts, he returns to his more natural character and sleeps with no dreams. So what's going on here? Is he simultaneously deep or is he mechanical? Once again, does he not realize that he is able to do these things? He is capable of this introspection and philosophy because um, he's doing it and then thinking, yeah, but it's useless. Yeah. It's a novel thing, yet this is the fifth time it's happened in the 150 pages of this book, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is odd. It, it's almost like he has to force himself to not go the, that route and say, no, this that's not me. That's not real, the real me. The real me is this guy yeah 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 i'm just gonna roll over and sleep with no dreams because i have no imagination i've got one more and i i I wanted to look this up to see if if uh, king took this from anywhere else but 
he uh, gets a little bit of an earworm of a line of poetry in his head. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is after he had taken the mescaline. Beyond the reach of human range, a drop of hell, a touch of strange. Yeah. Which is a nice little couplet, and I wondered if it was from somewhere else. And a, a brief Google search only brought up this book, so I don't know if it's you know from from somewhere else or if, if King made it up. But it, it had that sort of uh, Willy Wonka in the river ride uh, and the riverboat ride, where yeah, or even he, David Lynch. Yeah, or, yeah, right. It's just I, it's just a nice little couplet there that I uh, I thought w- was good. Um, Maybe you got to type it backwards and do, it's <laughs> actually from Firewalk with me or something. Yes. <laughs> the dwarf is rubbing the table. Uh-huh. The, the table is made of formica. There was a really great line that I, I wrote down. Um, Roland was talking about the last time he visited Gilead after it had been basically destroyed. Hmm. And he encountered, quote, an odor that seemed to express with a flat finality all the hard facts of disillusion and decay, the high sharp odor of wine gone to vinegar. Nice. Yeah. I just like, yeah, I never thought I would think like the smell of a salad means that your world has fallen (laughs) apart, but (laughs) no, I thought that was a pretty good line. All right. So I think that that's all for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Um, Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes for this episode. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter feed is at twoguysdarktower, the number two that is, at twoguysdarktower. Our next episode, we will be reading chapter four of The Gunslinger, titled The Slow Mutants. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurk. Thanks for listening. 